If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From the courtesans of Edo, Japan to the molly houses of Regency London and the women who made a fortune selling sex in ancient Greece. The history of sex work is a long, diverse and fascinating one. It's a story spanning thousands of years, which Kate Lister charts in her book, Harlots, Whores and Hackabouts. And I spoke to her to find out more. So thank you so much for joining me to talk about your new book, Harlots, Whores and Hackabouts, which looks at the history of sex for sale. Um, and you look at different places across the world through different time periods for that. I'm sure we'll delve into them in a bit in this conversation. Sex work is its often called the oldest profession in the world. Is that fair? Oh, is that fair? It's, it's one of the oldest, but um, the thing that you've got to remember is there's plenty of cultures and people uh, that existed without money and without professions. So if you don't have money, you don't have professions, ergo, nobody needs to sell sex for, for, for money, although I'm sure it's always been a really useful commodity. Um, there were anthropologists in the 1950s, actually, that did research on all um, tribal communities and tribal people, and they found that there was very, very little evidence of anyone selling sex because, again, they, they didn't use money. But the figure of the medicine man and the midwife were pretty much universal. So it would probably be more accurate to say that midwifery is the oldest profession. But you could definitely say that sex work is as old as money itself. And it's a very useful commodity. So starting off, busting some myths um, right off the bat. So each of your chapters in the book focuses really on a different time and place. So you have um, the courtesans of Edo, Japan, for example. You have medieval Europe, Molly Houses of Regency London. When, when as you say, sex work has has lasted an incredibly long time and across the globe. How did you choose specific locations and time periods to look at? That was really difficult. That was because you 
I mean, maybe you could do a definitive exhaustive history, but that would take at least an encyclopedia volume. So it was, well, like, what's the story that we want to tell? Um, like going back through and we didn't just want it to have a Western Europe, European focus. So uh, really wanted there to be a chapter on Japan and China. If I could do it again, I think I'd probably I'd want there to be a chapter on on India because I've been researching that a little bit, and there's a big tradition of Indian uh, courtesans actually being political activists and and quite revolutionary. That would have been interesting to pull out. But it was like sitting down and going right. Well, what story do I want to tell? So I want to go back to the earliest records. So that's the first one. That's ancient Babylonia and Assyria. And I want to bring it right up to the modern day, the modern sex worker rights movement. So whatever it's going to be is bookended in there. I wanted to tell the story uh, of men selling sex as well as women selling sex. So we don't just have this view that it's only women selling and men buying. And then that was a question of, okay, then well, where do you want to go for that one? And uh, looking at the Molly houses in 18th century Britain was a really harrowing and interesting history to pull out but we could have done it we could have done it at other places and other times obviously that's always been part part of us but there were some interesting stories to tell there we wanted to look at japan wanted to look at china we definitely wanted to look at the venetian courtesans because they're quite iconic you know it was more a case of like finding the earliest records and moving forward through time and deciding where you wanted to stop there um, but it'll never be exhaustive. And pe- there were people who read it go, why haven't you spoken about X, Y, and Z? And that's absolutely a fair cop. But yeah, this was as broad as we could do it. In It, it covers like 5,000 years of history. So these are broad brushstrokes here. It's <laughs> a lot to delve into. So this is an incredibly basic question, but why is looking at the history of sex work really interesting for, for a historian specifically? What can it tell us? Uh, I think that... The history of sex work and indeed continuing attitudes around sex work, they reveal so much about a culture and a culture's values and how they viewed money and uh, gender and sexuality. And and because the figure of the sex worker, who is almost always gendered as female, and it's it's more women sell sex than men, that, that's just true. Um, and I think that the figure of the sex worker, however she is understood in cultural terms becomes this kind of repository for all the attitudes around sex because a sex worker is there to have sex for fun a sex worker is there to have sex for pleasure the client's pleasure the sex worker is there to take money and the sex worker like go is a very liminal figure in a lot of ways because although that they're very stigmatized and i think that this might be where a lot of stigma comes from the sex worker exists in deeply patriarchal societies as one of the only positions that a woman can really access considerable power. And that might sound really contradictory to, you know, if you read some of the books, like people are sold into sexual slavery, there's terrible stories and abuses that come out. But also within that, in a deeply patriarchal society and a capitalist society, that's the system that these people have existed in all throughout history. The sex worker was had the potential to gain enormous power, to uh, get in the bed and have the ear of really, really powerful men. And the mistresses and the courtesans are viewed very differently from the people selling sex on the streets and in the brothels. But I've always wondered, is the stigma in part because of that power? Because it kind of books patriarchy. Is It is something that women can do, men have wanted, and it enables them to make their own money and be independent in a limited way, but it does. 
Well, that tension is something that I I wanted to ask you about. This idea that on the one hand, sex work can be really empowering for women and they're, you know, using their bodies to their own advantage. On the other side, it can be exploitative of vulnerable women. As a historian looking at the sources, how can you kind of balance those two or, or unpack which was more dominant? I think that the, the important thing about that, and we still do that, you know, that's where most of the debates around sex work still continue to be today, is people force it into a binary. It's either everybody's having the best time of their lives, it's fantastic, or it's absolutely horrendous and it's always abuse and it's always awful. And these are two really polarised opinions. And what we have to do now, but certainly looking through the historical records as well, is understand that both those things are true at the same time that what we are looking at is polarised experiences. And within that are the stories and experiences of millions of people. There are sex workers who love their jobs. There are sex workers who hate their jobs. There are sex workers who think, oh, OK, I'll go to work. There are sex workers who are there because they don't have enough money. There are sex workers there that are feeding a drug habit. There are people that are being coerced into it. All of these experiences exist within it. And if you start trying to understand it as a binary... You, you're gonna. You can't possibly ca- capture the complexity of it. All those things are true at the same time. So you mentioned earlier stigma, and something you say in the book that is that the stigma around selling sex has long blinded us to the realities of the women, um, primarily women who do sell sex. So, what kind of stigma have sex workers faced in the historical context? Much the same that they face today and continue to face. When you take a society that has quite repressive and um, misogynistic attitudes around sex and around gender and around money, the figure of the sex worker is always going to be stigmatised in those terms. If you've got a culture that stigmatises sex as dirty or naughty or shameful, the sex worker is the symbol of all of that. And it is the stigma that's the most damaging thing. It's the stigma that causes the most damage because it's the stigma that forces people into silence. It's the stigma that stops people today accessing help, getting support, uh, being open and honest about what they're doing. And when you create shame, that's where you create a lot of danger. So when you're, and this is very true when you're looking at the past as well, because it's so stigmatized, getting to that history is really difficult. Getting to that unbiased account is is hard. You can find what police thought, what moralizers thought, or judges or scientists or doctors. Uh, you can find police records where there's a sort of a testimony of somebody who's been nicked for soliciting and you can get their voice, but it's always filtered through something else. You know, like actually getting the testimony of the people themselves is so difficult. Do, do we have any sources really that give us the voices of sex workers? Mm, we have some that get close so there was a big thing in the 18th century for that became known as harlotographies. So that was like, you know, the famous courtesans would basically, you know, write their book and make their money. But those books, like, are they an unbiased account or are they operating also as kind of, you know, slightly titillating and, and pornography? Are they play into the masses? So you've got those kind of accounts. You've also got, um, like, in the 19th century, I think it was Henry May Hugh who, who, who Uh, wrote about London's poor and he interviewed and tried to write down verbatim what people are saying and he interviews a lot of people selling sex in the poorer areas of London but it's always filtered through his voice. Is that an unbiased testimony? We don't know. Getting to the actual voices themselves is incredibly difficult. That sounds fairly frustrating as a historian. 
Something that is a thread that runs throughout the book is society's attempts to crack down on sex work and attempts to contain or abolish it. What have some of some of the most strident attempts been to restrain and restrict sex work? Well, I would probably start that by saying that no attempt to abolish it in the history of human experience has been successful. In fact, it hasn't kept anyone safer. It's not helped anybody that's being abused or trafficked. It just makes it harder for people because that's what happens is when you apply more criminal sanctions and more um, repression to an already marginalised group of people. But the sanctions that have been meted out are are pretty tough. Uh, There was one statute that was passed in ancient Assyria, I forget the exact date, but it was anyone caught guilty of harlotry will be covered in hot tar. And we'll sort of, you know, have hot tar poured over their head. In uh, Brittany, in France, in the medieval period, there was a law passed that said anyone caught um, who was found guilty of common harlotry would have their nose cut off. And indeed, that, that having the nose cut off became known as the whore's mark because it was quite, it, it was a punishment for any woman caught doing that. There was head shaving, being put in the stocks, um, even laws being dictated of what uh, people selling sex could wear. So in Venice in the 16th, 17th, 15th, 16th century, uh, there was laws passed that they had to wear bells and like particular striped hoods and all kinds of like distinguishing features. And the the most common one that, that seems to be resorted to is this idea of zoning. So cities would kind of get this uneasy toleration and they'd kind of go, well, all right, then if you must. And they would create an area for sex work to take place and then try and regulate it. That's very common. You see that, and that was happened in medieval Britain. That happens in Renaissance Italy. That happened in the 20th century in New Orleans Storyville district. That's very common tactic, zoning. Have there been any societies where selling sex hasn't been stigmatised or hasn't been subject to restraint and um, policing? I haven't found one if there is, which is rather depressing. Um Although what I will say is our own time is actually quite exciting because we have gone for thousands, we've just said 5,000 years of history this book covers. We're still rolling through this cycle of repression, abolition, punishment, uneasy toleration, and then right back round again. But in New Zealand and New South Wales, they have brought in decriminalisation of sex work today, which means the removal of all laws specific to sex work. So that so a sex worker has got the same rights as any other worker and there are people that go oh my god but you've just legalized pimping or you've just legalized it's it's illegal to sexually exploit somebody now and it is under decriminalization of course it is that is different to legalization legalization is where the state goes you can do it but only on our terms that's zoning and mandatory registration things like that so the fact that we now exist in a time where this model is being introduced with huge success, might I add. This has allowed sex workers to unionise. It's allowed them to take uh, exploitative managers to court. It's allowed them to improve relations with the police, to report violent crimes, etc. And this is the model that's supported by Amnesty International and The Lancet and the uh, lots of other fantastic researchers showing it as well. That's really exciting that we live in a time where this is now being exploited. It took us 5,000 years And of course, the situation that is happening today wouldn't have been possible without um, several battles fought in the 20th century, which you cover in the book. Can you tell us about some of the biggest fights for sex workers' rights? 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the the other things that's really exciting today is we were just talking about how the voices of sex workers are lost throughout history because of stigma and because of recrimination. But now there are so many amazing sex worker rights organisations being led by sex workers fighting for their rights. Uh, in Britain, there's the English Collective of Prostitutes, ECP. There's also SWARM is their acronym, the Sex Worker Activist and Resistance Movement and uh, National Ugly Mugs. are some brilliant organisations. And th- that... The fight for sex workers' rights has been going on for as long as there have been sex workers, but it's really started to gain momentum in the later 20th century. And one of the key moments was in 1975. It's estimated around about 100 sex workers occupied a church in Lyon, in France, to protest police brutality. And the police had indeed been very, very brutal. And they stayed there for, I think it was 10 days, demanding that they uh, spoke to representatives from the government. They never got to, but their protest garnered national, worldwide attention. And every day that's still marked as International Whores Day, the 2nd of June. That was a pivotal moment, yeah. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We shouldn't speak for sex workers, and I kind of, I've written a book about the sex workers, but what I'd want is the history to provide a background context. It must no ever overshadow the voices that are coming out now because they're so important. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So I wonder now if we could delve a bit more deeply into some of the specific um, times and places that you look at in the book. One of them, which we've mentioned very briefly, is um, Japan, Edo Japan. And I wonder if you could transport us back, essentially, to the world of the courtesan in Edo Japan. It's fascinating um, how the figure of the courtesan is understood, not just in Japan, but all around the world. And the, the role that class and money plays in how we're prepared to view sex work throughout history and today is really interesting. I.e., if you've got a really wealthy client, if you're making a lot of money from this, now you're a mistress, now you're a courtesan. Whereas if you're just trying to make money to, you know, pay your rent and you're not a courtesan, then that's where the stigma seems to come in. And that was very true in Edo, Japan, where they they, they legalised pleasure quarters, the so-called floating worlds. They weren't literally floating, but it was this metaphorical idea that, um, that the pleasure zone was this kind of place where people could go and cast off the shackles of their everyday life and they could drink and they could have fun and they could have sex and they were kind of floating in this world of pleasure and then they would all have to go back to work again. So that the pleasure areas were existed in pretty much every city around Japan and they were completely accepted, absolutely part and parcel of um, the, the warp and weft of everyday life. Well, that, that raises an interesting point, um, just about how, as you say, some of these women have obviously worked alone through history, but a lot of sex workers have been embedded in, I guess you would call them structures, so maybe brothels, maybe royal courts. I wonder if you could just talk us through a, a few of the different 
structures, which is a weirdly academic way of putting it, sex workers have found themselves in? No, absolutely. So um, at the top of the pile, the best of the best would be the women that were working in the courts. This is Japan. And there are legends and mythology about the great courtesans, the mistresses of great lords and kings. And then you would have the kind of the more, the more upscale high market courtesans who would have attendants and they would, it would cost a lot of money to look at the way that they did. And they would have a little entourage of servants looking after them, but they were still effectively enslaved to the brothel because that was how this worked you would and then you had kind of the, the middling um class i'm not going to torture the japanese language by trying to pronounce what what they're called and then you had the sort of the lower class which was that they would sit in the brothel windows and wait for customers to come by and one of the things that's kind of really shocking for our modern day uh, sensibilities and it's difficult to square with it but it was considered in many ways a good thing to sell your child to the pleasure quarters. It sounds complete like that just sounds absolutely horrendous, but it it wasn't viewed with the stigma that it is today. If you sold your child to the pleasure quarters, they would start their training as a servant attendant of one of the courtesans. Um, nobody was supposed to actually start working selling sex until they were 18, but there are records that people did. So there was child sexual exploitation. But during that, they would be trained how to read, how to write, how to sing poetry. They'd be fed, they'd be clothed, they'd be well looked after, they'd be cared for. And the, and the, if everything went well, you would stop being a courtesan uh, sex worker at the age of 27 and have landed a really wealthy patron and you'd get married. That was the plan. It didn't always work like that. And to some people who existed and the very margins of, of life, uh, toiling in the fields in the absolute poorest areas, I guess that did seem preferable, which is that's really hard to like hold those things from a modern perspective of like, how could you consider that to be a good thing? But I guess that if you if your child went to work in the pleasure quarters, they would have an education that you couldn't ever provide for them. And I guess in a lot of the situations that you're looking at here and the situations that we're talking about, the opportunities available to women, as you say, for things like education or, or just employment were incredibly limited, which must have played into this whole story. Uh, very, very limited. In Edo, Japan, uh, a woman was supposed to have three loyalties in her life, one to her father, one to her husband, and one to the sons that she would bear. That was your job, is you were, as a wife, you were domestic, you're supposed to stay there, you have the babies, you are quiet, you are demure, you are all of those things. Whereas your husband, as long as he's supporting you, can go and enjoy multiple mistresses. And even though the mistresses exist in a state of sexual slavery, arguably they had more freedom than, than the wives. And that's the tension throughout the history of sex work, that it's really difficult to square these things but ultimately these were really brutal patriarchal capitalist societies and in a lot of ways they're playing the hands that they were dealt and this is obviously primarily a story about women but not entirely and and you mentioned of course earlier male sex workers your your chapter focuses on regency london can you just tell us a bit more about that world uh, Regency London, yes. I should have had a time machine. I think I might like to go back to Regency. I just want to wear the wigs, like the enormous skyscraper wig things. Um, that's interesting because obviously male sex work has always existed. There's evidence of it in Japan, in China, in Greece, all over the place. But what interests me about Georgian London is you, the records, the police records, the court records start to be much more 
complete and thorough, by no means completely thorough, but it is able to trace um, stories and narratives that perhaps you couldn't have done before. So if you were a gay man in Georgian London, uh, you wouldn't have understood yourself as a gay man. I think you'd have uh, called yourself a molly was the slang term. And there were molly houses all around London, which weren't technically brothels. They were more like meeting places for gay men, but they were meeting places where gay men went to have drinks and to have sex, and there is certainly hustling going on there. And although Georgian London's often portrayed in a kind of a Bridgerton-esque way, you know, like was everyone's just ripping the bloomers off one another and having an absolute whale of a time, there was also an increased prudishness, a crackdown. There were morality crusades and there were social purity uh, organisations that were set up and they attacked viciously the Molly Houses. They, they set up having raids about them and this was a time when gay men could still be executed and they were executed in the early 18th century but there were raids on numerous Molly Houses, the most famous being Margaret Clapp's in Holborn who was known as uh, Mother Molly's Mother Molly's Clapp House. And um, brilliant book by Richter Norton on that, if anyone was interested. And there were men that were rounded up and dragged out of these places and executed. And the witness testimony came from male sex workers that presumably the police and these morality groups had got hold of and basically threatened. And they'd turned informant. So we've got quite lengthy testimony from male sex workers about what was happening there. It's really harrowing. I, th I think it's really interesting to kind of unpeel the layers of morality that have been placed on this subject, isn't it? Because I was really interested to read in one of your chapters, I think it's on Renaissance Italy, that sex work was put forward as a way of saving the population, in quote marks, from homosexuality. <laughs> homosexuality, yeah. Um, you see that? Which was very surprising. It's, it's a strange justification, isn't it? But you see that quite a lot. It's, what it comes down to is this uneasy idea that the church has that, um, well, of course we don't like it. It's terrible people are doing these things. Uh, but if they don't do them, if, if men don't have access to sex, they'll do much worse. And they mean homosexuality. They also mean like violent assaults and, and sexual assaults or uh, cheating or indul indulging in affairs or having, worst of all, having sex with other men's wives. And that, that's why modern is, again, sounds like, oh, my God, it's absolutely crazy. But I still see echoes of that narrative. You know, like when, when there's ever some incel has done something terrible, there's always inevitably someone on social media that says, well, can't they have sex with prostitutes? Always. And it's that same attitude that the, the figure of the sex, the sex worker has to act as some kind of buffer for horrendous behaviour. So we still use that kind of idea of, like, we... If they don't have sex with sex workers, they're going to go and beat up women. But that justification, you see that cropping up all the time, is that it's terrible, it's awful, but I suppose if we have to have it, you can have it over there. And don't forget to tax it really heavily. I wonder if throughout the book there are any stories of particular individuals that you uncovered that really stuck with you. Do you know, there was, there was a fair few of those. There's um, There was a couple of stories that, that I, I uncovered and you know that thing where it kind of stays you there for a couple of days and you just kind of, you're quite like, oh, wow. And the one that really got me, um, it was the chapter looking at sex work during the World Wars which um, is all kinds of stuff is going on there. But the one that really got me was after the Second World War had ended and Germany had surrendered, there was a 
wave of revenge that was unleashed across France for anyone that they thought had collaborated with the Nazis. And the Nazis had commandeered all of the French brothels. And they'd done that um, not just because they wanted to get their ends away, but because they had this idea that if they controlled the brothels, they could control venereal disease. So they came in and they, they basically assumed control. And therefore... Anyone that had worked in a brothel, anyone who suspected of working in a brothel, was accused of what they called horizontal collaboration. Uh, whether that was true or not, these are already super vulnerable women who are just trying to get by and the Nazis have turned up. Uh, but these women in the reprisals were literally dragged into the street and there's photographs of them. They shaved their heads and they put swastikas on their foreheads in lipstick and they're paraded nude through the streets. And there's like, worse accounts of them being tarred and feathered and even killed. And like just seeing the pictures of them in the book, just so vulnerable, and these just baying crowds around them, it, that really stuck with me. That was that's so sad. If stories like that show us, you know, the exploitative side of things, were there any stories that that showed the other side of the paradox that we? Oh we've yes, about? absolutely. There is. There's many of them. I mean, one of my favourite courtesan art history was the uh, the Greek courtesan Freeney who was so famous and so good at what she did that we're still talking about her today. She um, she made so much money that when Alexander the Great destroyed the walls of Thebes, she offered to rebuild it herself. She had enough money. I will just rebuild the walls of Thebes, but only on the condition that they put up a plaque that said, uh, destroyed by Alexander the Great, rebuilt by Freeney the Whore. <laughs> And they, they said no, they didn't take her up on it. But I just, oh, that is such a power move. I love that. I love that. And um, there's, and you look at, it, it's a strange position that we've afforded sex workers throughout history because they have a lot of freedom in what they do whilst at once being constrained by stigma and patriarchy. But if you go to Renaissance Italy, one, one of the most famous poets, Veronica Franco, was a courtesan and she writes beautifully and openly about sex in a time where women were just supposed to shut the hell up. But because she is a courtesan, she has permission to do that. And she writes about that she enjoys sex and she enjoys lovers. And I find, and that was really moving uh, that she wrote that as well. And, um, and I love the story of the women in New Orleans Storyville district. So the Storyville district of New Orleans was another example of zoning, but there are reports that the sex workers were so worried that the city authorities were just going to make everything illegal and like really, you know, try and arrest them, that when they found out they were being moved to that particular area, they didn't go quietly, they had a parade down the street. <laughs> so I, just, I love that idea. I think that, that that's amazing. Um, so yeah, there's loads of stories you know, like that. Nell Gwynn's one of my favourite courtesans as well. And she was born in poverty in London, uh, in a, a brothel, some people say, and became King Charles's mistress, Charlie Boy II. The book is is very it's full of lavish illustrations um, and some pretty some pretty colourful ones too, um, photos, posters, everything like that. I wonder if you could highlight a couple, some of the most remarkable images um, that you've kind of worked with here. What we wanted to do with that is we wanted to try and get as many faces in there as possible because it's that thing, it's like we might not have the words of them, but we can just maybe get there with portraits and photographs and some of the most amazing photographs um, I think are from a photographer who photographed the women in New Orleans and he wasn't known in his lifetime um, and his name was Belloc and um, he photographs the women 
working in the brothels in New Orleans, but what he doesn't do is he doesn't do kind of like cheesecake, saucy, titillating pictures. These are literally just the women between clients and they're kind of, they're just sat around sat around in their stockings and drinking and they kind of look tired or happy and they're just relaxing. And it's just such this amazing snapshot into like behind the scenes and you just, you can't help look at it and think, where are they? What happened to them? Like, what was the rest of that story? And you just don't know. It's just that flash into them. But I love those ones. Those ones really stay with me. Anybody who reads your book and takes in this 5,000 year history, what would you want them to take away from it? I would want them to take away, first of all, I hope that they enjoy it and they hope that they they think that the the pictures and the words are beautiful. I'd like that. But uh, what I want people to kind of take away is the frustration that's in it about like all of the, these thousands and thousands of years of history of repeated attempts to abolish and control and repress and, and look at the pain that that causes. That, and I'd really like that. And I finish it on the chapter of looking at the sex worker rights movements with a real invitation to please listen to sex workers now. Uh, I'm aware there's a certain irony in me saying that, being an academic and uh, effectively, and I'm going to say, we shouldn't speak for sex workers. And I kind of, I've written a book about the sex workers. But what I'd want is the history to provide a background context. It must no ever overshadow the voices that are coming out now because they're so important. That was Kate Lister. Her book on this subject, Harlots, Whores and Hackabouts, is out now, published by Thames and Hudson. You can find plenty more material on the history of sex, love, relationships and sexuality at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us next tomorrow when Peter Stamford will be exploring what churches, abbeys and cathedrals can tell us about our past, present and future. (laughs)